and then Good Friday at half past eight, there will be uh, a service in here to remember um, the crucifixion of Christ and his death, um, and Easter Sunday, both in the morning and in the evening, there are going to be services on just at the normal time. So put that into your planning for the Easter week. Let's pray and then we'll come and have a look at this passage. Heavenly Father, we thank you that uh, there are so many things going on that, that we can go to that might um, be helpful. We do pray that there will be a large number of people who might come to the Alpha course, have an opportunity just to hear what the Christian faith is all about without being condemned. They have an opportunity to think and to express their ideas without being confronted by people. They're allowed to express themselves. Father, we pray for those who are planning to get married and those who already are, that our marriages might be great ones. Lifelong. Where people love each other and care for each other, listen to each other, forgive each other. And they can only get better. Father, we pray that this might happen. Now, Father, as we come to have a look at this, your word, we pray that you might teach us things from it that might be an encouragement to us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. For those of you who were here last week, this is the last two parts of the section that we had from 3 verse, wherever it was, I think it was about 11, all the way through to 4 verse 11, which is where we got to this week. It's, uh, the whole of the passage is really talking about the victory that we have in Jesus. And it's tied in with the discussion that's been going on in the rest of 1 Peter about suffering. Basically, the, the apostle here, Peter, says, look, one of the reasons that we, we go through suffering, and as we go through it, we have to have the same attitude that Christ had. And if we have a look at Jesus, he suffered, he even suffered to the point of death, this is just at the end of chapter 3, but he was victorious. He was raised to life. And he declared not only that victory, um, it wasn't only declared to him, but he declared it out to others and he was raised and was victorious and he now has power over the whole universe. So think about that and look at your own life and think it forward to that. And these are the last two little sections from 1 through to 6 and 7 through to 11 wanting to encourage us as we go through life, particularly as we live good lives, that people have a look at our good lives and they shun us because of it. They think poorly of us, or, as I was talking to someone this week, they think we're nuts to live like that when there's so much other good stuff on around. And they either treat us as if we're fools, or because of the challenge that the lifestyle is to them, they actually begin to treat us badly. Because it, it's so different, it's anti-cultural to the way that they live. And so the Apostle here says, having given us this example of Christ, that Christ has been victorious, there's two things that he says to us about this and how that impacts us. So the first is from verses 4 through to 6. Therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, he's just gone through this example that Christ suffered and was victorious, Arm yourselves also with the same attitude because whoever suffers in the body is done with sin. It's a complicated 
little bit of an argument here. I actually had to look up some English words during the week because in all the commentaries, these are the ones they, they were using. It's apparently a syllogism. I have no idea what that is, except when I looked it up. It's a, a kind of a, a logical argument with three points here. If this is true, and if this is true, then the conclusion of that is this. Does that make sense? Um, If you play a game well, you win. New South Wales doesn't play well. Therefore, New South Wales doesn't win. Does that make sense? It's a three-point argument. But does that make sense? So it's that type of argument. In other words, it says, if this is true, and if this is true, and you put these two things together, then that's true. But there's even a more complicated type of syllogism than that, and it's called ensimeme. Who's English here? Where do you get with that? What that is, is it's something that when you say it, you kind of leave bits out because it's like, duh. Right? You wouldn't say it. So, um, let's go back to our previous example. <laughs> If you play a sport well, you win. Leave that out. It's just a foregone conclusion. It's a dark statement. <laughs> New South Wales doesn't win. Right? Does that make sense? It's just so out there, you don't have to use it. You don't have to say it. Right? I was going to pick one with long hair, but I figured I wasn't going to do that. Right? But it's that type of statement. So it kind of goes a little bit like this in terms of his argument here. It, it's the form of, of speaking they used to do. The main premise, Christ suffered in his body and was vindicated on his death. It's just what he's talked about. Christ suffered and was victorious after death. That, that's the thing he's just been talking about. Because he just says, therefore since Christ suffered in his body. And then there's the next one which isn't fully stated. It's there a little bit, but it, he wants us to understand this. So it's kind of like that dust, statement. You will also be vindicated if you have the same attitude as Christ has. If you live a righteous life like he did, regardless of the outcome, then you'll be vindicated too. He's, he's just said, be like Christ. He's just said, given this example of what Christ is like, and now he's kind of making this sort of comment. And his conclusion, which is also actually a little bit vague, is righteous living... And the suffering that comes from it has a much better outcome than the other thing. Look at the example of Christ. Suffering, righteous living, like Christ did, and the suffering that flows from it, because his whole argument is if we do good things, people are going to condemn us. What happened with Christ has a better outcome, and therefore, he says, because whoever suffers in the body is done with sin. And there's when you begin to have a look at your life and you look at which way should I live, you look at Christ's life and the fact that he was victorious. And then you look at the life that you've been living and the life that leads into sin and condemnation. He's going to come to this in a minute. Then obviously when you've got that choices, knowing Christ, you've done away with sin. You put it aside because as you weigh things up, it's lost its value. 
he's kind of coming to this, this idea that the attitude should be intentional, that we make a decision to put sin aside. His rationale, because if we do that, regardless of our suffering or not, the consequence of we will be victorious and therefore it makes sense to put it aside. So he then goes on to the next sentence. As a result, as of thinking about this attitude, people do not live the rest of their earthly lives for evil human desires, but rather for the will of God. In other words, he says, as you look at Christ, you make a decision. Am I going to live this way or this way? Which way am I going to live? I look at the consequences. The consequences of living the sinful life that I've always lived, you can come to this in a moment, is the fact that I don't have a right relationship with God. And I don't have victory when I stand before God in judgment. So that's one opportunity that I have, is to live this way, which is contrary to God's law, and at the end result is when I die I'm judged and I'm condemned because I haven't got Christ. I don't have victory. Or the other way is I can put sin aside and I can say I'm going to live like Christ. I'm going to live a righteous life. I'm going to be good. And regardless of how people think about that I know that the end product of that even if they don't know the end product of that I know the end product because I've got the example of Jesus is victory, life eternal. In some ways, the words that are as a result there at the top should probably better be translated in order. I'm going to understand, I'm going to put that aside so that I can live the rest of my life for Jesus, the rest of my life for him, because the conclusion is victory. Verse 3. Tying up his argument. He's got two sides here and he's just pointing it out. For you've spent enough time in the past doing this way of life, what pagans choose to do. Living in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing and detestable idolatry. He's basically said, if you think about it, you've spent enough time doing that where the consequence of that is death. You You should change. You should do something else because you spent enough time doing that. And that list of things sounds terrible, but almost all of the places that I read said, that's just normal first century living. That's what the culture did. When they went out, they lived lustful lives. They tried to get stuff for themselves. They slept with whomever. They watched whatever. They went out to get drunk. They went out to lose self-control. They partied in, in orgies where they just satisfied themselves either with food or with other sensual delights. Carousing, wild parties and detestable idolatry where they worshipped other things besides God. That was just their everyday life. He says, you've had enough living that life. And everybody's going to be really surprised when you don't do that. They're surprised, and the, the Greek word for surprise is they're, they're going to think it's strange. It, when you turn and you now live a good life, where you don't participate in all of those things which you know God says you should not do, 
people are going to look at you and think, you're nuts. You're strange. That, that doesn't make any sense. You live in our culture. Live in our culture. And this is what our culture does. And there's not much difference, really, except maybe in, in order of, of some of these things, between those days and our days. People who live apart from God are basically very self-centred. That doesn't mean that all of them go out into the wild, wild, like, movie-type, sex-in-the-city-type living. Right? But it does mean that the attitude there, which is just for me, is very common. And even though some people step outside that, our culture pushes in that direction. And they're going to be surprised if you don't join in their reckless, wild living and they'll heap abuse on you. Now that type of abuse is not like, you know, it's, it's a verbal abuse, but the idea is that they're going to say things against you. Not necessarily abuse as in something for which they could be jailed or something for which you think this is really, really, really harsh. But they will verbally, and then it goes on a little bit in terms of the word abuse, in terms of the way that they treat you, they will treat you badly because of that. He says, That's, they're your choices. You've had enough time living like that, knowing that if you do this, they will treat you badly. This is the whole suffering thing. And then here's the final comment but they will have to give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. He says, what you have is you now have the, have the information that you can have victory in Christ. If you live like that, God will judge that way of life. If you have the answer and you choose to go the wrong way, his argument here is you're nuts. You're nuts to choose to continue to live like this when you know it doesn't please God and when pleasing God shows that you've had a change of life which leads to victory. And then the last part of his argument, verse 6, people are concerned about at times. Let's just read it. For this is the reason the gospel was preached even to those who are now dead so that they might be judged according to human standards in regard to the body but live according to God in regard to the Spirit. This isn't the same thing about preaching to the dead that we talked about last week in terms of the end of chapter 3 because this, just the construction is talking about the gospel was preached. It's the gospel of Jesus that was preached, so it's not Jesus who's doing it. And it's talking about, if you like, the gospel has been preached to people, they've heard the truth, their lives have been changed and they died. And the world looks at that and says, see, it doesn't make any difference. You can't prove anything, buddy. Christians die, non-Christians die. You live a good life, you die. You don't live a good life, you die. Nothing's different. So therefore I might as well do whatever. My grandfather was a bit like that. He said, look, there's no point in doing all of that Christian stuff because you'll just die anyway and you're done away with. It doesn't matter whether you're good or you're not good. You might as well have the fun time doing all this stuff. 
But his argument is this is the reason the gospel was preached to those who are now dead, that even by human standards they might be judged according to the body, what's happened to them, but they are alive according to God's point of view. He says this is what you need to understand, that we're talking about victory which is forever in heaven, not victory now. Yes, we are victorious in some things now, but we're talking about eternity. Therefore, people aren't going to understand because most people don't think past death. But you, he says to the Christian folk, live a good life because you know that regardless of the outcomes in the human terms, you have victory forever. So that's his first point. Put sin aside. Why? Because... Sin is on the losing side and living a good righteous life in, in Christ leads to victory. So be like Christ. In many ways it's like what Paul says in the book of Philippians. He says the same thing. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded having the same love, being one in spirit and of mind, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather in humility, value others above yourself, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mind that Christ had, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used for his own advantage. Rather he made himself nothing, by taking on the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. He says that's the attitude you need to have. And then Paul goes on to talk about victory as well. That's the first point. How does that relate to us? Well, I think we all go through life and we make those choices we come up to a hard decision and we think, what's it going to be? Will I either go with the world or will I go with that which at the moment attracts me? I know in my heart that God doesn't like that type of behaviour. The benefits are short term. But will I have a think about what pleases God? Because living as he wants to me, wants me to live has long-term benefit. There is victory at the end. This short-term benefit just leads to death. Anyways. So therefore, put that aside, we are now dead to sin. And let's live for the will of God. That's what he's saying. His second point, which is hope to encourage us in this lifestyle, again associated with victory, is in verse 7. The end of all things is near. The end of all things is near. And I'm going to jump down right to the very end of verse 11 because I think this is the, the beginning and the ending of it. The end of all things is near so that all things, in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To him be the glory and power forever and ever. Amen. And these kind of put the bookends on this. He said, the end is all near when God will be glorified. That should be the attitude which drives you. You're understanding that that is close. What he means by that, 
2,000 years on, people argue about all the time. Did Peter, for some reason, think that Jesus was going to return and the end of the world was going to happen very soon in someone's lifetime? Possibly he did, I don't know. Did he, he think that everyone was going to die really soon because of suffering? These are all the things people talk about. Yeah, maybe. Whichever way it is that he's talking about, his understanding is that our life should see that end as being that which is close to us, if you like. Whether it's in terms of time or in terms of... It's something that we should see as having results very soon in our life. Whether we understand that our life is short and we don't know when that's going to happen, we should be aware of it. Or whether we should see ourselves in the whole swath of history as being in that end time when we we know about Jesus and the end is coming, whichever way it is, his idea is the fact that this thought of the end should transform the way that you live. Paul puts it this way. He says, keep your mind on heavenly things, not on earthly things. Keep your mind on what God wants, not on the moment here. Be ready, says Jesus, for whenever I return. It could be soon. It, you should live with that expectation that it's soon. I loved it when my parents used to go away for holidays without the kids. Let's <laughs> take it out of my parents. Every now and then still goes on holidays without, I've probably given this example before, without the kids and me. She goes away. We have a blast. We love having you there, darling. I'm just, by the blast, I mean you can, you can, we've got enough dishes in our house, you don't have to wash for three or four days. And if you know she's coming back at Friday lunchtime, then you can leave everything till Friday morning to start washing up. So you can have messy house up until then, then do the cleaning up. But if she goes away and you're not quite sure when she's coming back, she kind of says, I'll come back on Friday, then it could be 6.30 in the morning or it could be in the evening. So you actually can't do it on Friday? You actually got to clean up Thursday night just in case she rocks up first thing in the morning. This is kind of the idea that he says should be driving us. The end is near. Be ready for God to step into history and say your time's up or to him to step into history and say time is up whichever one because we don't have to live with that expectation that God is keeping you accountable even now. Um, Syl and I have been watching on iTunes, Person of Interest. Anyone seen Person of Interest? It's it's this show where there's this machine that just takes all of our electronic stuff and evaluates it. So they watch us all the time, non-stop. Good show. But every time I think about that and then I go walking down the street, I keep looking around for those cameras and thinking, who's watching? What's going on? In some ways, that's Peter's argument as well. The end is near. 
be aware that you live in God's world and it's in his time and he's watching. He's the judge of all the earth. That's what he's just ended with. So he says, with that in mind and the fact that you are to glorify him, because that's the end product of what he wants us to live for his glory, be alert and of sober mind so that you may pray. Basically, he's talking about having an attitude here where you are constantly living in an awareness of your relationship with God. Where it says, so that you may pray, probably the better translation is, because the word pray there is actually in in the plural, so that you may attend to your prayers. So that you may attend to your relationship with God. So that you may be in communion with God. So he says, the end is near, therefore be what? Be alert and sober-minded. Don't let yourself go. Don't let yourself say, I'm going to be, I'm going to step out of the Christian thing for a while. No, be alert and sober-minded. Why? To maintain this relationship with God that you're supposed to have. Don't get sidetracked. And then he goes, above all, love each other deeply. This word deeply is actually used in terms of where in the original language it has to do with like an athlete that has a, a constant, sustained, strenuous effort, if you like, that, that constant stretching to succeed. That's the type of love that it's supposed to be. Not just a love that is deep, but a love that is intentional, a love that just is constantly the forefront of, of your pursuit and we're to love each other that way. And then the other sentence that people worry about, why should we love each other deeply? And he says, because love covers over a multitude of sins. Love covers a multitude of sins. And people explain this one of three ways. Firstly, they say, well, he's talking about, he's doing a quotation from Psalm 32 verse 1. In Psalm 32 verse 1, David says, Blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. And he's saying, well, love forgives a multitude of sins. Love each other deeply because love forgives a multitude of sins. It's appropriate that you love one another so that you learn to forgive one another as Christ has forgiven you or because God forgives. And therefore we need to see each other as God sees them in love. Maybe that's what it is. The second way that people say is no, it's not Psalm 32 verse 1 that's quoted, it's Proverbs 10 verse 12 that's quoted, which says this, Hatred stirs up conflict, but love covers over all wrongs. Here we've got the idea that love, when you love things, it covers over the wrongs. Not, not that they're forgiven, but that when you have the conflict, it just gets worse and worse. But love kind of puts those things aside. Love, you, you, when you love somebody, you can put that aside and you can not get into that fight and that problem with them, but rather you can have peace. And we're supposed to live at peace with all people. The third way, and I think possibly ties in with what's going beforehand, is that he's not really quoting anything, but he's just making a really wise statement because it makes sense. 
I had this happen to me earlier on this week. I can't remember. I was talking with Steph and I made a really insightful comment. It was pithy, just a few words and it was kind of like a slogan. And I thought, that'll nail it. She'll understand exactly what I, what I mean. And she just looked at me and she said, you copied that off an ad. Because apparently there was an ad a couple of years ago that used the same phrase. And I said, I've never seen that ad. That's straight out of my brain, girl. It's a, she, I'm not sure she still believes that that's true. But I think that's kind of what he's going here. This is just a good, such a good statement. He uses it. Right? Love covers over a multitude of sins. He's got this idea that love is the way that you go. Because the word cover also means hinder or or hides or pushes away a multitude of sins. The word can mean that or it can mean to actually hide underneath. And maybe his idea is this, when you love one another deeply, these things are pushed away and don't happen. Because that ties back in with what he's just said beforehand. You don't live like this because this is the, this, they're the two options. You can live like that or you can live like that. And basically he's saying when you love one another deeply, as, as God loves you, when you treat people that way, you don't sin against them. When you love them, you don't get unreasonably angry with them. When you love them, you don't treat them like an object. When you love them, you do what's best for them and not what's best for you. Therefore, love hinders and covers over a multitude of sins. Whichever one of those three it is, and I don't think it matters, they're all true. Whichever way Peter is trying to express it, he's trying to say to those who are going to be followers of Jesus, love one another. Love each other. And then he gives another, either an example of this, or another, uh, another saying as to how we should live if we're actually going to live in the certainty of Christ's victory. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. As, as we love one another, then let's enter into those relationships with people where we welcome them into our homes. Where we welcome people into our lives, regardless of who they are and what they're like. Regardless of their background, regardless of their education, regardless of their faith, regardless of their whatever. Show hospitality. But not the sort of hospitality which in the background says, I know we're supposed to do this, but I wish we didn't have to. Not the sort of hospitality that when they come, oh, are they ever going to leave? You've been there. And they keep staying. They said go. But the hospitality which just loves to have that involvement with people. It's this sort of love that's there that we're to have for one another. He says that's what it's supposed to be like. Our love is, we're supposed to act like that to people. And then he says, because the end is all near and you are going to be alert and sober-minded, each of you should determine, make use of whatever gift you've received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. In other words, God has gifted you for the purpose of being part of a community to serve one another. Because you're no longer living that selfish lifestyle which seems to permeate our society. Instead you're living a life which is to please God and God has 
called you to live a good life, to love one another and to, to be hospitable to one another, but he's called you to be that sort of life where you serve others instead of yourself. And he's gifted you to do that. He's, he's given you, by his grace, ways that you can encourage others. And he gives, he kind of categorizes the two different types of ways we can do that. He says, if you speak, if it's that speaking sort of gift of, of prophecy, of encouragement, of, of sharing the word with people, of just coming alongside them and helping them, then you should do it as one who speaks the very words of God. In other words, focus in on doing this service, knowing that you are in God's place and therefore speak the words as God would have you speak them. It's not as if they were God's words, but as God's words. Understand that you're his servant and your opportunity is to serve in his name. Take your job of serving one another seriously. Don't do it half-heartedly. You used to teach people to preach. And you could tell those who took their job seriously and those who didn't. Some of them would rock up and, and give the most awful sermons. And you'd ask them how much time they actually put into it. And they said, well, I thought the Spirit of God might speak to me when I got up. And I'd have to say to them, look, give him a bit more time. Give him 20, 30 hours in the previous week to speak to you. Because you're slow when you stand up. When we come to talk to somebody to give them advice in their life, think seriously about what we're going to be saying as if the words are words that they should take on board from God that we constantly keep working out what would God want me to do in this situation as I'm sharing my conversation with this person. If anyone serves, they should do so with the strength God provides. Maybe it's not speaking that you work into someone's heart. Maybe it's the fact that you have an opportunity to come alongside them and do something for them, to help them, to um, encourage them by by working in the house with them, encourage them by giving them something that, that they need. Encourage them um, by just sharing what you have with them, whichever way it is that you serve them by doing. He says, do it with the strength that God provides. Don't do it in your own strength. Don't get the blessing for yourself from it. But put everything into it that you possibly can, that you might love them deeply, if you like, in God's strength. All he's trying to say here is keep your mind alert and sober, focused, God-centered, so that whatever you, in whatever you do, you're doing it with this idea of I'm living for God, I'm living for God, I'm living for God. And then he closes this section off. So that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. In the end of chapter 3, he talked about the fact that we were now, if you like, being baptised in Christ. He was kind of using those words in terms of the cleansing of our conscience. We have now become, if you like, in Christ Jesus. So that in all things that we do, God will be glorified. People will notice that this is different from the way the world runs. Because to him, be glory and power forever and ever. 
What do we take away from all of this? As I was reading through all of that, I was thinking about why and where and what I do during the week. And basically, I think that the thing to take away is that as we go through life, whether it's talking with someone that we really care about or talking with a perfect stranger, whether it's doing our job at the university or doing our job in some employment or looking for work, whichever area that it is, whether we're talking with our parents or our children, whether we're relating into what we should watch on television, how we should have a relaxation time, how we look at the computer and what we use it for, what type of music we listen to. Our mind should be active. We shouldn't just participate in the same everyday activities that we've always done, mindlessly. But we should understand and, if you like, evaluate. Is this something which is consistent with someone who is living in the victory that Christ has brought about? Or is it not? Is it just what everybody else does and actually it has no value? Whichever one of those two that it is, he says, you should understand, this is the way to behave. In all of those areas, your thoughts should be, what does God want me to do? And you should do that. That should be the outcome. And he's given some examples. Love one another. Spend time with one another. And as you interact with one another, do it for his sake, not for yourself. And that will take a lot of the arguments out of the situation. It will take a lot of the headaches out. Sometimes people will think that you're just a pushover. And the general world will have a look at you and say, man, you're nuts. but we live in a side that is victorious and that should spur us on and encourage us to continue living that type of lifestyle. If you haven't made that choice yet to be in Christ over in the world, then I'd encourage you this week to do that. Because if we're not found in Christ, then the statement that he has here is they will have to give an account to him because God will judge the living and the dead. And he is going to have a look at whether you have lived in Christ or apart from Christ and for yourself. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray for everybody here and for myself that in the coming week you will help us to remember the victory of Christ. As we have the lead up to Easter and we, we look at his suffering again, being whipped and flogged, thorns on his head, spat on, beaten, betrayed by his friends, abandoned by his other friends, denied friendship from the people that were closest to him, and then killed in the most awful way. Help us to think that he's done this for us. Not just that we might have eternal life, but we might have eternal life with him victorious in heaven. And that that knowledge might spur us on to live differently from many in the world who don't have that understanding. 
that we will in fact live in such a way as to just please him that we'll be good in our thinking in our speech and in our actions that nothing might come between you and us nothing might hinder our relationship Father I pray all of these things in Jesus name Amen